Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today, Gene Slater joins us to talk about his new book, Free to Discriminate, How the Nation's Realtors Created Housing Segregation and the Conservative Vision of American Freedom from Heyday Books. So, Gene, if you would uh, start us off by telling us a bit about yourself and your background and what it is that brought you to this book, please. Sure. Thank you. Um, So my background for the last 45 years has been working in financing affordable housing, where we've been one of the leading advisors um, on affordable housing around the country to state and local agencies from helping create home improvement programs back in the 1970s in Pittsburgh that fixed up 18,000 of the 72,000 single family homes to public housing revitalization, to mixed income housing in the suburbs, to home ownership programs around the country. So that's sort of my background. And part of what got, there are two things really that got me interested in, in, in what became the story of this book. And really it's the story of my own learning um, is how little people who've worked in affordable housing know about the history of housing segregation. Do we sort of operate in a world in which you know, we deal with zoning and we deal with planning and we deal with housing issues and sort of all the consequences um, that have happened to the country from having segregated neighborhoods, disinvestment here um, and exclusion there. So that's part of it. Um, the other, though, was a question that I asked, um, it was actually in a human rights uh, seminar at Stanford, which was, how is it, how did it happen that conservatives on almost all civil rights issue argue that extending civil rights, you know, limits American freedom. Um, where did that idea come from? And, and it turned out that it came in fact from America's realtors back in the 1960s who used freedom to try and defend residential segregation um, against in the battle for fair housing. So it's sort of the relationship between these two things, between the history of how did we wind up with, in some ways, these two 
defining features of modern America, which is having segregated neighborhoods that have sort of driven the design of all our metropolitan areas and where people live and who their neighbors are, and a conservative vision of freedom that's helped drive the country to the right for the last 50 years, that these two defining features of modern America, sort of our political divides and our racial divides, were in fact both created um, out of the effort to segregate neighborhoods in this country. Excellent. So that feels like a, a a perfect setup for us to maybe start by digging into to a little bit of this history. Um, so you 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 begin the the historical narrative looking at the activism of real estate interests initially in California uh, in the progressive year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about about why? Uh, about that story and then perhaps why it is that, that you think it still matters and why we should care about it. Yeah, I, I think, let me do in the context of segregation for a minute. Perfect. I think it's important to realize um, this sort of a myth that, and there's a, a myth the realtors promoted that America, that cities have always been segregated. The segregation is normal and natural and historical. But in fact, if you go back to the beginning of the 1900s throughout the country, um, cities weren't segregated. Neighborhoods were racially mixed in many areas. People lived in areas that they could afford. Often there are minorities who lived in poor areas, but those were scattered and spread out and mixed racially um, in cities across the country in 1904. A Los Angeles real estate broker took pride in how, as he said, Negroes of this city have proudly refused to segregate themselves and live in many of the better areas. And this was true not only in Los Angeles, but in cities around the country. So it took some, and it, and, but by, by 1917, um, in the same city, um, an African-American woman said, we've been surrounded by invisible walls that have encircled us and that whites have prevented us from going beyond. So what happened in those years was the creation of segregation as a whole as a whole racial system that then spread out and operated within every city in the country and it was the product of the organized real estate industry and so it took something it wasn't simple segregation didn't arise as a result of racism um i mean yes racism obviously drove this but there had been racism was certainly strong in 1900 as it was in 1920 or 1950 or you know during the battle over fair housing in the 1960s it took something else. It took an organized real estate industry. And that industry and how that became organized is really the story in some ways of the application of the progressive movement to real estate in this country. Um, that at the beginning of the 1900s, real, local real estate boards started forming originally as a way to, to control fraud in real estate, to distinguish themselves, a, a, real, a real estate agent was generally known as a shyster. Um, and there were stories endlessly of fraud and abuse and so forth. And so a small group of the most established brokers in each city put together real estate boards that would say, we are, you know, you're, we are the people you can trust. We created a multiple listing service that became effectively a monopoly that allowed them to control 80% of home sales. They got licensing through state governments originally in California. So they really came to control the real estate industry. And that 
And it was only because they controlled it as all white real estate boards who focused on limiting who could join them. Because their view was in order to really control the industry, in order to have an influence, in order to dominate home sales, they needed to control who their membership was. So they had secret membership committees that blackballed applicants, limiting them precisely to people who they socially wanted to be associated with and felt they could trust. That excluded all minorities. So it was that organizational framework that was necessary for house for segregation to happen. It couldn't happen with just everybody competing willy-nilly to just find the best real estate deal for a buyer or seller. It took an organization that was trying to limit how homes were sold. So, and you, you describe these organizations as basically private clubs, right, in the way yes. in which, which they functioned. Um, so can you talk a little bit about sort of what were the the, the the policy innovations, right? So this is the root of, of sort of the, the the modern version of zoning laws, for example, yes. right? What are the what are the kinds of things that they were agitating for as a matter of public policy beyond just mere practice of agents? Okay, so in the same way, so these were real estate boards were as progressives were strong advocates of regulation. Regulation was necessary for American progress and stability, and they and they viewed stability in real estate, sort of their key goal, as a function of what they called the law of conformity, which meant like things would like. And part of this, so the Los Angeles Real Estate Board pushed for what became the first zoning in the United States in 1905 that's, that limited all industrial uses, excluding from all residential areas in the city. They then pushed eventually for more detailed zoning. Um, including the first single-family zoning in Berkeley in 1916, um, which was a way of, of limiting and saying that the real value of real estate consists of not what happens on this individual parcel, but what happens to those around it. And it was this idea of conformity that led to zoning and led to city planning and the realtors, um, that was the trademark of the members of local real estate boards, um, realtors then were the, the leading advocates and they saw the creation of zoning as sort of one of their great accomplishments in their industry, along with rooting out fraud um, in real estate. Um, they saw this effort. Um, th- this effort then got applied to race. And how it got applied to race is an interesting story in itself, which was, that, as I said, segregation didn't exist at the time. And a couple of um, pioneering realtors, members of local real estate boards, one in California in Berkeley, uh, Duncan McDuffie, another in Kansas City, J.C. Nichols, both in 1905 separately, came up with the same approach. They decided what they were going to do was sell high-end subdivisions, create high-end subdivisions that would in some ways be the, the classiest in the country with curving streets and trees, so forth, developing a whole large area um, using the kinds of uh, landscape designs, the Olmsted brothers uh, who designed uh, Central Park and later um, that they were using. But to build these high-end developments, you would build them out over many years with a lot of infrastructure costs. 
they were concerned about the, their profit. Their, their income really came from the last units um, that they would sell, the last lots that they would sell. So they decided in a world without zoning that the way to control um, uh, what would happen on these later lots was to put in covenants, deed restrictions that limited what each neighbor could do on the property around you. Um, many of these were you had to keep the street trees or the trees, you had to build a house of a certain size or of a certain cost, things to maintain the neighborhood. To these list of covenants that had been used originally in a subdivision in Rowan Park in Baltimore in the 1890s, they added one more. It was one that cost them nothing. And this was a covenant that said each person who signed it, each owner, had to, sign, had to say that for the next 30 years, no one um, other than a servant uh, could be non-Caucasian, could live in this, could live in the house on this property. These deed, deed restrictions, racial covenants, they instituted, and this became so popular. It started being adopted not only by these high-end developers, but very quickly by developers of middle-class homes, uh, middle-class subdivisions, and then working-class subdivisions. And by the 19-teens, realtors in existing neighborhoods started circulating petitions that the um, everybody would sign. And once three-quarters of them signed it, then anybody, if one of them, or their, the person they sold the house to ever sold to a minority, then the neighbors could sue to evict that person and who would lose the house, which had an enormous chilling effect. And by the 1920s, these kinds of covenants were on you know, half the homes in America and most of the new homes. So this is sort of how segregation began originally as a way to solve a land development problem a control problem, but it fit this idea of the law of conformity. Why was it originally created when Duncan McDuffie was doing these in Berkeley in 1905? It wasn't likely that the relatively few Japanese Americans or African Americans in, in the Bay Area at the time were going to afford the most expensive house lots, you know, in the entire Bay Area. It was a sort of, it was a form of social cachet. It was this way of saying, your children will always play with neighbors' children like them. So that was really how segregation began. So in and looking at 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 sort of of what the 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 the, the end of this period of expansion as, as these practices find their way throughout large swaths of the rest of the country, it also becomes something something of an axiom that people of color will drive down property wow. values. And this, of course, winds up being folded into later uh, instantiations of, of federal policy. Can you talk a little bit about that yeah. idea, where it comes from, yeah. what the evidence for it is, and so on? Right. It, it didn't just come to be. It was, in fact, designed. Um, in fact, what realtors had done was create this whole racial system, a system in which if, even if somebody was offering you more money for a house, an owner wouldn't take an offer from an African-American buyer, a doctor or a lawyer. So to sell that, remember, realtors weren't all the brokers in the country and an owner didn't have to use a broker at all. They had to create the whole idea of racial, of racial restriction was that one minority would ruin a neighborhood. But how could, they, how could they, in effect, 
so they became the anti-policemen, the local real estate board, in charge of trying to prevent this. But what rationale could they use to convince everybody you shouldn't make more money by selling to minorities who had fewer choices and therefore often had to pay 20% more for housing as a result of this racial system? So the answer was they came up with you know, an axiom, if you will. What they argued was a scientific and economic principle. Uh, the Portland Real Estate Board said this in 1920, that our members, not because we have any prejudice, for we have none, um, shall all refuse to sell to a minority in any Caucasian neighborhood because uh, it, will lower the, it will lower the property values in that area. And this, the, the, real estate, the real estate, National Association Real Estate Boards, the organization of the realtors, sponsored the textbooks and the appraisal manuals that were written throughout the country, all of which, and taught at 165, 165 universities, all of which said this as a matter of pure economic science, that a minority moving area will reduce property by 50% or 30%. And this was this then got included in the code of ethics of the realtors in 1924 for all local real estate boards saying that no member can sell to somebody who will lower who will reduce the property values neighbor and who were the experts on what that on who would do such a thing the local real estate board they were the experts on real estate value this same principle this same idea then got adopted when the realtors basically were the key lobbyists for and the designers of the federal housing administration in the 1930s so FHA required developers to have racial covenants, and they refused. They and it was the realtors who did the drafts of the early redlining maps, so that homes couldn't be sold in mixed areas. Out of the theory that homes in such a mixed area, property values will go down. Well, it turned out that this entire property value argument and the fr- the phrasing for it was in the world of, words of the key appraiser leading appraiser in the country was undesirable human elements depreciate property values. Those are undesirable human elements. People were undesirable because for pure economic reasons, not because you were prejudiced against them. So it basically took prejudice and made it seem scientific. It turned out in the 19, late, starting in the late 1940s when appraisers, some independent appraisers started actually checking, this wasn't what happened. In fact, mostly two-thirds or three-quarters of the cases when minorities entered uh, white neighborhoods, prices went up for a very obvious reason. Just like in any restricted market, like in black markets during you know, a war, um, if people are limited in where they can live, they'll pay more. And typically, blacks in America paid 20 to 30% more for the same quality housing. So it's not surprising that, yes, if they move into area, maybe fewer whites wanted to live there because that became the whole marketing pitch of the realtors, but minorities wanted to live there. So it turned out this was bogus. It was a lie. Um, Luigi Laurenti did a study from Berkeley, went back, and he interviewed all the authors of these textbooks for 30 years. They all said the same thing. And he said, can I see the studies that this was based on? You know, where, did, where was the data? It turned out there was never any data. It was made up. And, but mid-century America, FHA, our whole, the whole system of the development of American suburbs was built on this premise. 
but by the late 1940s, this had been discredited and realtors now needed a new way of rationalizing why neighborhoods had to be segregated. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So at the beginning of our conversation, Gene, you pointed out that there are, are two main themes that run through the book. The first is what we've been talking about, sort of this, this, the, 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 poly, the, the, the interest group story in some way, although you don't quite frame it that way, of, of local real estate boards and the way in which they, they shape not only California policies about land use and housing, but then how those policies spread throughout the United States and found them their way folded into federal policies. But the other piece of this story is in some ways a story about uh, American political thought, about conservative political thought. And and at the core of that is, is an argument that you make that these real estate interests built an argument that the right to discriminate should be understood to be a core freedom, and that by the time we get into the late 20th century, that becomes adopted as a principle of the conservative movement. First of all, tell me if you think that's a fair characterization. No, that's, that's, and, that's exactly, that's exactly right. what So tell us, tell us a little bit about that story, if you would. Okay. So you have to picture how realtors saw the world, which is they had created by the end of World War II, an entire racial system where African-Americans were excluded from 98% of new homes and 95% of neighborhoods, a system reinforced by FHA, reinforced by racial covenants, um, reinforced by realtor boards themselves who would expel or suspend or freeze up the business any broker who dared sell to a minority. That's how you had such a system, an ever-tightening system. Um, but World War II posed a challenge to them as opposed to segregate, diehard segregationists in the South, which is World War II was fought in the culture and the ideology and the statements of leaders of both parties as a war for freedom for all Americans, in which all races would join in. And so you had... But, and so the argument for real estate, the property values, things have been discredited. So how did you now sell segregation when there were millions of returning GIs, minority GIs, who had bought homes and were excluded by racial covenants from living there? And the way they did that, a uh, realtor later became the national president, Charles Shattuck in Los Angeles spoke at a meeting of um, Westside homeowners in Los Angeles saying why they had to keep out uh, returning mi minority GIs, many of whom with medals and purple hearts. And he turned, he needed a patriotic argument, an argument in the context of World War II. So we argued that Americans, that the reason they had to keep out other races was because to defend American freedom. He said, there's a free, he said, in our constitution, it wasn't actually there, there's freedom of association, your right to exclude other people um, and uh, other races. 
And everybody has this right. Negroes have this, Chinese have this, Mexicans have this, whites have this. We all have this right. And it's your patriotic duty to uphold that freedom. And they use this argument, your right to exclude other races, that was used, adopted at the same time by Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats in the 1948 election. They used this during the 1950s, even after uh, racial covenants were outlawed in 1948, to continue and intensify segregation. Fair housing advocates, civil rights uh, groups, started pushing fair housing laws to then end this monopoly, this racial monopoly, which is really how this system worked, starting late 50s and 60s. Uh, using the argument, in effect, of shared freedom that Martin Luther King, it was at the heart of the civil rights movement, that your freedom depends on everyone's freedom, that freedom belongs to the country as a whole. And they made, um, they started getting city and state after state in the country to pass fair housing laws. In a few places, in Massachusetts and Colorado, local realtors decided they would go along with that. But in many places, California being the most noteworthy, realtors decided when fair housing laws were passed that they would try and outlaw them by going to voters. And so in 1964, on the ballot in California, they placed a state constitutional amendment that would forever prohibit fair housing. It would authorize discrimination and say you could never limit residential discrimination. This is the same time the Civil Rights Act is being passed in Congress, and most Californians are in favor. But realtors, here was a, an amendment that had never been in any state constitution, no state constitution, even in the Deep South, authorized discrimination. So how did you fight publicly with, in the, uh, voting, with voters for why discrimination should continue? This is at the height of the civil rights movement, the height of American liberalism, as Lyndon Johnson was going to defeat Barry Goldwater by the largest margin in history. The realtors were politically isolated. No prominent politician, not Barry Goldwater, um, not Ronald Reagan, would support them for fear of seeming racist. So they decided that the answer, the approach, was to redefine American freedom and to say that freedom meant means the freedom to discriminate. They would, in effect, challenge the idea of shared freedom from Martin Luther King to Marshall Washington with a very different idea of freedom. Freedom as your personal private property, your right to control uh, you know, who you sold to and, and therefore who your neighbors would be. And they made this seem, they invented what became colorblind freedom, saying, well, we're in favor of the same rights for Blacks and for rights, which was namely the right of all owners to discriminate. They never mentioned the right of people to buy a house in the first place or of tenants. So they took a technique, which has then been used by conservatives on issue after issue, um, from guns to abortion, everything else, which is to take a single narrow right, someone that had never been talked about in this case before, an owner's right to say, I have a right, a freedom to take somebody, you know, to not choose somebody who's willing to pay me more for my house uh, on racial grounds. They took this right, they elevated this narrow right as being, they defined it as sort of a litmus test of American freedom itself. This is what freedom means. Um, and they argued saying we're in favor of equal rights for all, we're in favor of this freedom, 
So what does freedom really mean? They said, freedom means freedom of choice. And they said, what is discrimination? Discrimination is just, just means to choose. So on billboards around on freeways in Los Angeles, the headline or the banner read, freedom of choice, vote for Proposition 14. That was the name of the proposition. So in effect, their argument said to millions of Californians, a relatively liberal, moderate state, said, look, to be for Proposition 14, to permanently authorize discrimination doesn't mean you personally are prejudiced. It means you believe in American freedom and that you're willing to defend American freedom against liberal government who is trying to take it away from you. It's not minorities who are the enemy. It's liberal government. You're the underdog. You're the individual homeowner. So they created this notion of the ordinary American being penalized by liberal government, sort of make a transcendent issue. The result was, and it stunned politicians of both parties, that 65% of the voters supported Proposition 14, 75% of uh, white voters, 80% of white uh, union voters, you know, normally in part of the Democratic Party, on the same ballot where Lyndon Johnson defeated Goldwater by almost 60 to 40. So here was a message. Here was a way of thinking about freedom that was then adopted by Ronald Reagan two years later when he was running for governor after Proposition 14 was ruled unconstitutional. He adopted this idea of individual's freedom. He said, if a man wants to discriminate against a Negro or others in selling or renting his house, it is his right to do so. This is American freedom. This then, this idea of freedom, freedom as your own personal property, as an absolute right that can't be limited like freedom of speech or, you know, um, freedom of the press, but is like freedom of religion. In fact, they linked it to freedom of religion. They said, this is a matter of the dictates of conscience. If, just like you can't restrict religion, you can't restrict discrimination. So they made this the centerpiece. Eventually, fair housing got passed in the days after Martin, federally in the days after Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. But it was so weakened by congressional fears of the voter rebellion of Proposition 14, it's remained relatively weak ever since. But even more important, this idea of freedom became the centerpiece of the conservative movement. And it became the centerpiece because it solved three structural problems um, for the, that were necessary for conservatives to become powerful in this country from being a very small minority in the 1960s. One was it you conservatives were split between social conservatives, traditionalists, favor of uh, school prayer in the schools and religion, and libertarians, who were sort of an exactly opposite view. So this used the language of libertarianism, of absolute individual rights, your right to do anything you wanted, to enforce social conformity, to enforce community traditions. This use, libertarian language, to, in effect, reclaim a past tradition of community, of how things should be. That's the way conservatives have used freedom ever since. The second thing that this approach did was it created a transcendent image of our politics, that politics weren't about issues about balancing this right against that right, but they were about American freedom itself. Um, 
a transcendent image let people see themselves as engaged in a sacred fight over all these issues. And it could, and the same technique of elevating a narrow, absolute right as American freedom itself could then be used on abortion, the rights of the fetus over writing as we see in Texas today, on guns, that guns didn't mean things you could regulate was an absolute right, on campaign finance restrictions, on regulating business, whatever campaign finance vaccine mandates what yeah mass vaccine vaccine mandates mandates. exactly the same idea permeates the country and the third the third problem it solved was the problem of the creation of what would become a new kind of republican party for the first time in modern america a, a national conservative political party back in the 1950s Democrats and Republicans had wide ranges of, you know, uh, groups on the right and left. But in 1948, Charles Wallace Collins, um, a Southern uh, um, uh, lawyer, argued that in order to ultimately defend Jim Crow, the only way to do so was if Southern Democrats left the Democratic Party and joined with Northern Republicans, pro-business Republicans, in a common party, as long as those Republicans would pledge to leave Jim Crow alone, to not impose racial, you know, uh, civil rights. So here was the idea of a national political party united by limiting the federal government's right to control, you know, race, uh, to protect uh, minorities, and protecting business against regulation. Here was the idea. By 1964, when Strom Thurmond joined the Republican Party after Goldwater, this became politically possible. But it needed an ideology that could work both north and south. That ideology of colorblind freedom that the realtors had had to create in California, if it could work in California, it could work anywhere. So it solved that problem. So you created, in effect, a national party organized around this idea of freedom. Um, and the, and the dynamics of such a party naturally, when that's the key central idea, naturally lead it toward leaders who more and more will embrace that as the only meaning of American freedom. And so therefore you see, and the, the results during COVID are incredibly striking of this. You have Donald Trump, as in Michael Wolf's new book, you know, told by his advisors, he really should be in favor of mass mandates. This would help. It would help win re-election. He said, I can't do that. It's off-brand. Because it's outside the domain of the Republican Party. You see DeSantis um, having used this argument of freedom. He now, therefore, has to violate basic, cons- most basic conservative principles of local schools, deciding what happens in the schools, and of businesses being able to you know, decide what customers they serve and how they deal with employees. And you see Abbott in Texas, who would facing a, a challenge from the right um, because of his own mass mandates this year, has to be against mass men. So it isn't like the, to aspire to leadership in this Republican Party doesn't mean you have a choice on vaccine and mass mandates, because this is to do so would be to be off brand against the central idea that has united the conservative movement. Because, and here's the key thing this same argument. You think of the conservative movement as all these separate causes, but what they've had in common is this same technique of using American freedom, this idea of absolute individual freedom, 
on issue after issue. So the more, so that unites. It's not this not an advantageous alliance of different interest groups, but every time that issue is raised, that argument is raised, it reinforces the same message. So that becomes the dominant message um, that shifted the country to the right for all these years. And it was a message that was designed to perpetuate segregation in the first place, to keep because absolute freedom for some always means government can't protect the rights of others. That's what absolute freedom means. And that's its central idea. You're listening to Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Gene Slater about his new book, Free to Discriminate, How the Nation's Realtors Created Housing Segregation and the Conservative Vision of American Freedom, new out from Heyday Books. Gene, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much.